Welcome to the Mindful Sobriety Podcast with your hosts, Jane and Amanda. I'm Jane, a licensed psychotherapist and alcohol-free retreat host. And I'm Amanda, alcohol-free lifestyle coach and yoga instructor. We're so glad you're here. We are so excited to have Allison Jabot joining us today. Allison is a licensed therapist, mindset coach, and international speaker. She specializes in anxiety, trauma, and sex and intimacy. Today, Allison shares how she went from being sober curious to finding freedom in an alcohol-free life. We also touch on guilt, shame, self-trust, and intimacy in sobriety. Allison was an absolute delight to talk to today. We left the interview feeling inspired and energized. We hope you do too. Enjoy. Great. Allison, I am so happy that you have joined us today on the Mindful Sobriety podcast. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about you. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. So my name is Allison. Um, I am a licensed therapist and I specialize in anxiety and trauma and in sex and intimacy. So I've been doing that for several years now. Um, I mostly see women and kind of one of my big passion points is that I like to help women see their worth, rebuild their confidence, find their empowerment. Um, and, you know, in a lot of my experiences, I've, I've come to see just, you know, how poor a woman's self-talk can be and how it can really inhibit their lifestyle. So and their decisions, what kind of relationships they have. So, you know, the last few, few years, that's that's been kind of my my jam. I've been uh, out here trying to post some positivity and uh, help women reconnect to all the good stuff that makes them them. Yeah, that is awesome. Amanda and I have been so excited to have you on here. Just last week, we were talking about marriage and the alcohol-free lifestyle and how that can impact intimacy. And yeah. you happen to specialize in sex and intimacy. So this is just um, the perfect fit. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much. Yes. So I, um, you know, I love talking about being alcohol free. I think it's extremely important. I am on my own alcohol free journey. Um, I about, let's say like four years ago, it was right after COVID. I had been kind of grappling with the idea of just like, hmm, maybe booze isn't really showing up for me very well. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really scary. And it was like in, you know, the COVID world where, I own some bars, my husband owns some bars, and um, we had free access to, to booze, right? Our bar was closed down. And so we would go and like pick up a case of wine and bring it home with us. And I really realized um, in that time that alcohol really just wasn't showing up for me very well anymore. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have four degrees in mental health. And something that has sort of blown my mind is no one in any part of my training really taught me the effects of alcohol on anything other than sort of addiction. Right? Mm -hmm. Like I had a really good archetype of like, what does alcoholism look like? What does alcohol abuse look like? Yes. But I really didn't have any kind of a framework for, you know, you might not have an alcohol dependency problem and it's still be blowing up your life. That and is such an yeah. excellent point. Like, for me, with in my education in psychology and clinical social work, 
what I heard was the disease model of addiction, that there are normal people and then there are these people with the disease, the select few with the disease who just can't drink. But everyone else is fine. You know, go ahead and have at it. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And, you know, (laughs) my drinking lifestyle had changed over the course of 25 years-ish, right? I started probably in my, you know, when I went to college really drink so much in high school, but it kind of took a full effect after that. But, you know, even something like a hangover, right? Like I had this like very coined idea of what a hangover is. It's someone who's like, you know, throwing up, they can't get out of bed. They have this hard, they need lights off. And for me, that's not what it was showing up as. I was a totally functioning person. I could go to work, um, you know, at that time when I was really starting to have these ideas of like, maybe this isn't working for me. I was virtual, right? I was doing virtual therapy. So I could yeah. work pajama pants at the bottom and just like kind of roll into my bed and do therapy. But what I was starting to notice is just how anxious I was feeling. Um, And just like waking up at two o'clock in the morning, having shakes, feeling dehydrated, panicking about what I had done the night before, even though, you know, at this time I was like at home, right? (laughs) I did nothing. I didn't send any crazy texts. I didn't walk out of a bar. Um, And even through my whole drinking career, I was a pretty tame, you know, drunk, uh, (laughs) which I almost think made it a little bit harder to quit, right? Because I would tell people like, hey, you know what? I think maybe I'm going to chill. I'm going to take a break. I might even think about giving up alcohol altogether. And the most common response I got was, you know, but why? Like, you're fine, right? You're a good time. What's the problem here? There's no problem here. And it really kept me stuck, right? Because I didn't have any other model of someone who was just picking their wellness or picking like a better life. Right. There was no conversation about that. It's like, you know, if you haven't hit rock bottom and you're not powerless over this substance, then there's really nothing to be done. Maybe try to moderate a little bit more, you know, but that's, that's about it. Yeah. And the moderation was exactly what I tried to do. So, you know, the world reopened, the bars reopened. Like I said, I own a bar. So I was immediately chucked back into, you know, the bar lifestyle. And I was just like, well, I can do this. I can moderate, right? I don't need to quit. That would be crazy. I can just cut back. And something that I realized now, but didn't realize then was just how many rules I was creating for myself. And they were all really Mm -hmm. arbitrary. Right. Like, okay, I'll only drink on Saturday, not a Tuesday. Right. I'll only have three glasses of wine. No, okay, forget it. I'll just have beer, no wine today. And, you know, sometimes in psychology, we call it intermittent reinforcement. Right. Sometimes I would nail it and it'd feel really good. It's like I said I was only going to have two glasses of wine and a martini and I did that. Right. Yamie. Most of the time, it was not that case. Right. I was really waking up and being like, how did I do this again? And, um, you know, I have a mentor um, in in this whole alcohol-free journey. And something she really highlighted for me is that I was losing trust in myself, right? That I was making these big commitments to myself and I couldn't follow through. And I didn't really realize the gravity that extended beyond just alcohol, right? Like I was thinking like, well, if I can't even give a booze, How am I going to write a book? How am I going to start a podcast? How am I going to start my own practice? And I didn't see that correlation. It was like very subconscious, very, very subtle. Mm -hmm. But now I do see it. I do see like the marked difference between the before and after of just how much I can like believe in myself now. Yeah. Yeah. So 
circling back to the intermittent reinforcement, like mm. that interval reinforcement is actually the strongest form of reinforcement. So if you mm. think about slot machines and, you know, most of the time you're not getting what you wanted, but every now and then you do, and it keeps you coming back because you know, you can do it. You know, it's possible that you can go have your two drinks and be done and have a successful night of drinking. Yeah. And so there's this subconscious illusion that, well, then I'll just do that every single time. Yeah. But that doesn't, that's not what, that's not what alcohol is designed to do. Alcohol is a substance that causes craving tolerance mm -hmm. where we need more to get the same effect. And, you know, it's, it's not a problem with the human body. It's the way a human body responds to that substance. That's right. Yeah, exactly that. And then I think that realizing ultimately that what it came down to was an ability to trust yourself. And if we can't trust ourselves, like even just the little things, like not being able to trust yourself that you're going to go out and only have two drinks mm -hmm. so you can wake up and feel great for yeah. your day the next day. And then, oh, wait, well, I had four and now I have a headache and I didn't sleep well. And I woke up at 2 a.m. with a pounding heart. Yeah. Like something as small as that to something like, well, I have these goals and how, how am I going to get to this? If it's, it's like, you've got this, you're carrying around this like weight that's making your goals so much harder to achieve. And when you release that it's, there's so much freedom and so much ease. Yeah. That's exactly the word I would choose freedom. Like I just feel, you know, awakened and just that like, giant I was making my life so much harder right and now that I've been able to step back um you know I did I I kind of had an untraditional sort of sobriety journey um although I do actually think it's more popular where I started with taking really big breaks right so yes you know, I wasn't even in necessarily like the one day at a time mindset I couldn't get there I was still it was too still too scary for me mm -hmm. so I would commit to you know intervals of time so it started really little right I was just like okay let's just go the week and then I did that and I again built that a little bit more trust so I'm like okay now I can go a month now I can go six weeks and over the course of time, you know, I was just building numbers and right. now I have had enough time where I just can't see another way for my life. Mm -hmm. um, so on, uh, what was it? I should have, like know my own date. Right? <laughs> August 15th, I committed to just like, this is it. My life is just better on this side. Um, but yeah, you know, something that became aware to me now with all this time under my belt is not just the trust, but it's how many decisions in my life were being poorly affected by alcohol. And something that really came up for me um, is my relationships, right? So I lost some friends, which I think is, you know, a, a really hard truth of when you make really any big change in your life, but certainly one that is so social to begin with. Yeah. Um, and that was really heartbreaking for me. It's now so, it can be so painful. <laughs> so painful. And now I can look back. And when I really assess the friendships that I lost, you know, I don't begrudge that part of my life or what I needed from those people and what they needed from me at that time. But they were really much more superficial friendships. They, you know, I mean, again, I bartended for 20 years. I own a bar. Let me tell you at three o'clock in the morning, no one is having a deep conversation, right? People are repeating <laughs> themselves. They're not listening. They're slurring. Right. And now that I've been able to step back, I've had more time. 
So I really like nurture the friendships that I do have. And they're just deeper, more meaningful, more powerful. Um, Certainly the relationship with my husband has gotten exponentially better. We've been together for 12 years. We met over drinking. He owns the bar I used to work at, right? Very scandalous. I was his employee. <laughs> you know, here we are 12 years later. But who needs boundaries in a bar, you know? <laughs> no boundaries in a bar. There's no such thing. Right? Yeah. So that was a big, like, metamorphosis for us of yeah. having an identity together that isn't so centered around staying up to four o'clock in the morning. Where are we yeah. going for a cocktail? Like steeped um, in yeah. alcohol culture. Steeped in alcohol culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to circle back to something you said about the beginning of your journey, that it looked non-traditional, which is actually becoming more and more popular, which I love, but you were having these periods of time where you would commit to certain chunks of sobriety. And it's almost like you were collecting data and you had these comparisons of like, this was my life alcohol-free for this month. And then here was my life, not alcohol-free and which one actually felt better? Because we have all these fears that if I give up alcohol, I won't be fun or I won't connect with anyone or my friends won't want to hang out with me or I'll be so bored or I won't be able to like get rid of this feeling of uh, anxiety or stress or whatever it is. And it sounds like you almost had like this emotionally corrective experience of actually these breaks were not about deprivation. Absolutely. You know, the fear at the beginning of all the things, right? Again, you we, we use alcohol for pretty much all things, right? We, if we're mourning, we use it to help us get rid of those sad feelings. If we go through a breakup, right, we go out and that's our liberation. We're having cocktails. We cheers when we celebrate. So I had all these really marked patterns of just like what fun looks like, what social life looks like. And, you know, that I have to admit, I was in a very deprivation mindset at the beginning, right? Like I'm missing out. And, you know, my coach really tried to get me to reframe that. Like, what are we gaining from this experience? And something that profoundly helped me, I made notes to myself. So I have like a running, you know, little note in my iPhone, and I would write the day that I drank and how I felt. And what I was starting to realize is there was gifts. So like things like, when I moved to New Jersey, I got to drive home, right? I didn't have to take a $200 Uber, right? I could yeah. just get in my car and go. Um, you know, I was learning that, you know, I, now it sounds obvious, but I didn't really realize this then. It's like, it's not the alcohol that's making the things fun. It's the thing I'm doing. A concert is just inherently fun. I'm seeing a band nice. I enjoy, right? So over time, I did get that. I love how you said that, like that just like emotional information. And I was getting better sleep. I was getting to go home. I was having better boundaries. Like I didn't have to stay at a bar until 6 a.m. I could, I could leave at 11 if I wanted to. Yeah, and, and get a good night's sleep. A good night's sleep. And so, you know, I was just starting to feel better, right? And, you know, I think there's so much messaging about just how good alcohol is, right? That everywhere. even though it was counterintuitive, I'm like, actually, it's not that good for me. I'm finding on the other side of the bottle, there's freedom, there is passion, there is self-trust, there's better relationships, there's better relationship with my husband. But I would still like the full commitment I needed for me, I needed a bunch of different times to really like, just like nail it into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the idea of never doing something again feels very stifling and intimidating. You know, if someone told me I could never eat chocolate again, 
that would feel very hard for me. I'd be thinking about chocolate all the time. And so I like the approach of just like, I'm going to see what this is like and just, you know, treat it like an experiment and get curious and start collecting data and make some intentional choices around it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So, so then you started talking about your husband and how y'all, he was, he owned a bar and you were the bartender and so y'all started dating and then you were together 12 years and now you're married and now you're alcohol free. So what, like looking back on that timeline, what sticks out for you in terms of just intimacy and connecting with him and the role of alcohol in that journey? Yeah. You know, the day that sticks out to me the most and you know he he hates it when I use this as an example but I it's mine and I I still stand by it was our wedding and you know we had really committed to like absolutely no drinking and um spoiler alert did not succeed um (laughs) and you know I was with our wedding was over the course of several days we were we were a COVID wedding our our wedding got canceled we rebooted it a year later about only, you know, we were supposed to have two, 200 people, only about 70 were able to come, which was still pretty amazing yeah. uh, the year later. So we spread it over the course of a few days. And I remember the first day, like only having two glasses of wine and being like, yes, I did this. And then the second day we had a big, you know, we were outside, you know, still kind of recovering from COVID, even though it was a year later outside. We yeah. at this big beer garden. And I remember, again, committing to the two drinks. And I had my goddaughter. I had no bridesmaids because I was in my 40s and I just didn't want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. My goddaughter, who was 13, was my quote-unquote bridesmaid. And she actually came up to me at the beer garden and was like, Nancy Alley, you said you would only have two drinks and I've counted three. I was like, wow, like someone else is noticing that my behavior changed, you know? And um, the next day for our actual wedding, I was like, well, I've got this, right? Like, here we go. I only had two and then I had three. golden and I was really stressed out there was a lot of things that were happening as per normal weddings right yeah and my wedding planner actually jokingly but in hindsight I'm like wow that was a powerful moment she brought me a bottle of wine with a straw right and she was like just take a big swig like swig as much as you can and this is like minutes before I'm getting walking down the aisle right and again a powerful experience of like the woman that I've hired to help me navigate all of the pressures my family pressures the idea of just getting married. I don't like attention. So just, I was getting really nervous. It was like, yeah, the coping skill is get drunk, right? Like that's what get, we do. Like ingest the central nervous system depressant. So you'll numb yourself to all the things yeah. you're feeling that are totally appropriate to feel on your wedding day. And like, how sad it's my wedding day. I should have been like mindful. Right. And the end of that story, both my husband and I kind of got through the wedding. Fine. We did the typical Jersey thing. We went after hours and the, the last memory of the night is like him and I screaming at each other at a pizza place because we're like drunkenly eating pizza. I'm in my wedding dress. Oh my right? gosh. Like, God bless what the people at the pizza parlor were thinking at 5 a.m. Like here's I mean, this guy. This could be a movie. And I remember that being, you know, we, we woke up the next day. Most of the 90% of the wedding was fantastic. But I'm like, the last, like, there was still an ugly memory in this day that was supposed mm-hmm. to be really special and really beautiful. And that was like, okay, we have to do this differently. You know, yeah. like, this just can't be the way. And yes. just like intermittent reinforcement, I would joke with my husband, we, we most of the time wouldn't fight when we're drunk, right? Most of the time. 
Yeah. So maybe three months, but it's like still four times a year. Yes. We're getting into this like epic fight, which is just trunking, right? It's like, we're talking about nonsense. None of us are listening to each other. And, you know, at a certain point, I was like, let's just play that tape forward, right? One of those sentences that I love when we talk about alcohol. Yes. Like, do you see us staying married in five years if we continue to have four epic fights that we have to really spend some time recovering from? Yes. I don't see it happening. You know, I think at some point, not today, but some point, we're going to have to break up. And what a tragedy will that be? Like, for what? You know, so that we can have a beverage. Yes. Right? A beverage and that gives you 30 minutes of a little bit of euphoria. Yeah, exactly that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. It's this, this side of it. And I'm very proud of my husband. It took him a longer sell. Um, he watched me, you know, kind of learn, like become a better person, a better wife. Um, you know, he has children, a better stepmom. And, you know, he's been inspired to try it himself. So he's committed to a year, right? He, I think okay. I haven't totally sold him to the whole like forever deal yet. Yeah, he committed but that's to okay. Yeah, yeah. And just the other day he was like, yeah, we are doing so much. Like this is, we're, we feel, we both feel safe now, right? Like yes. alcohol is chaos. It breeds instability. Yes, and, unpredictability, you know, emotional inconsistency. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah intimacy is not truly authentic if if we're intoxicated so yeah. to get that really true unlubricated intimacy we have to be sober-minded yes. lubricated in a different way let me just lubricated say. in a different way oh yeah <laughs> definitely <laughs> but yes but you're right like to actually feel the emotions that come up for you if you're if your central nervous system isn't functioning fully, you're not going to fully be there. No. And, you know, so a lot of the work I do with my clients, right? So, you know, I, a huge part of my practice is that sex therapy. We talk about embodiment, right? How to connect to your senses, how to really get intimacy really is about vulnerability, right? Like, I mean, think about it the most literal sense where we're stripping down naked. We're like pretty yes. raw. So, you know, how to show up so authentically to that space is really being your most vulnerable and mindful self. Yes. And, you know, for me, mindfulness always just sort of means focusing on what's happening around us without judgment, really connecting in. And most people don't have a lot of those skills, right? Like no one really teaches us as much as we go to like, maybe you've had sex ed, maybe, right? Maybe. Like, you, like menstruation, right? They're not teaching you like, how to have an orgasm. They're not teaching you. Oh my gosh, what it's no like way. To, you know, <laughs> on your own on that one. <laughs> so, you know, most of us are going to start our sex life kind of going in blinds. Yeah. And it's scary, right? And like, what have we all learned? When we're scared, it's easier to numb out, right? Get I'm your so straw much... and your wine bottle and numb out. Absolutely, right? You know, oh, I don't know how to go on a date without alcohol. I'm not funny. I'm not interesting. I'm not sexy. Oh, I'm so insecure. Right. And so we build a pattern of getting drunk before sex. And, you know, all right, maybe you've had sober sex. Maybe all of your sex hasn't been drunk. But for most people, at least some of it has. Right. And yeah. just connecting to that whole mind body connection with whoever it is that you're sleeping with and you're having this experience with is just really intimidating for most people. So, you know, a lot of the work I do is 
getting someone more comfortable, like really looking at like, why are we so scared? How can we build confidence? How can we build security, right? What kind of boundaries might you need around it? Yeah. So it's really safe for you rather right. than just going in, numbing it out and then seeing what happens. Right. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, the concept of having boundaries in a long-term relationship or in a marriage sometimes hasn't even occurred to them that you, you can actually set boundaries with your spouse or your significant other. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. So how do you see shame playing into this? You know, I grew up in the eighties and nineties in Texas and, you know, steeped in purity culture and sex was a taboo topic, especially sex outside of marriage was considered to be extremely shameful. Um, what are your thoughts about that? And how does alcohol play into it in your yeah. mind? You know, shame, I think is, I'm going to say a bold statement, but I almost think is the, one of the most, if not the most common feelings um, when it comes to sex. And because shame, like by nature, is really secretive, we don't talk about it, right? So we have all these big feelings. I'm, you know, and it can be shame on anything, certainly from purity culture, right? Like I'm dirty, I'm slutty, I, I'm a bad person, yes. right? All well, of like those just things. the metaphors that some that were given, like a piece of gum that had been chewed up and can't be unchewed, and you know, these horrible, horrible things for a little girl yeah. to be thinking about herself. Yes. And then let's say she does have sex outside of marriage, and then that's that's her idea of who she is. Mm -hmm. It's like Absolutely. damaged thing that can't be undamaged. Yeah. Yeah. The one I actually, believe it or not, I've not heard the gum one. Right. For when, when I also grew up in the 80s and 90s, ours was, you know, the one with the cow. It's like, who wants to buy the cow when you give the milk for Get free? Get the milk for free. Yeah. So it's all of this like already shameful stuff. And then when yes. we're talking about maybe other things that are coming up in within our sexual life, right? Our sexuality, right? Maybe someone's yeah. wanting to experiment with a girl but doesn't want to be claimed that they're a lesbian right like yeah they don't want a label totally normal inside of sex there's body shame right i don't know how to show up and be seen no one's ever taught me that right i'm just cowering at the idea of someone seeing me in all of my glory right and yes. you know, particularly of course men have it as well but women particularly struggle with a lot of body image mm -hmm. right certainly things like back to the purity culture masturbation, right? A girl might not oh, yeah. want to experiment, figure out what she likes herself, watch. Or even consider that that's an option to figure out how to have an orgasm. Yeah. Right. So it's like, we think about all this stuff, right? We might be insecure about our body. We might be insecure about what we want. We might be insecure of, you know, religious guilt telling us we're naughty, naughty, right? Yeah. Doesn't it kind of make sense that when it's like, oh, I can just numb some of these feelings. Here's this magical potion. Yay. <laughs> way it gets quieted right that's an alluring option right now i Absolutely. know you know right in, in the therapy world like there's ways to heal these messages quiet these messages without turning to a substance yeah that is also not something that's like very readily talked about absolutely and it takes it takes more time and it's it can be extremely difficult it takes a lot of courage to do that work yeah it does absolutely you know, I joke that, you know, I have a social, decent social media presence and we, I can't even write the word sex, 
right? They make you like exit out or the thing gets flagged. You have to like put an asterisk where the E is or something. Exactly. Right. You have to put like the money sign, like I'm Kesha. Um, (laughs) So, you know, but I think that speaks volumes to that. Like we can't even speak about this stuff, right? Like how are we having conversations if we can't, if the word sex is something that can get you taken down on social media, we're not having good conversation discussions yeah like that is subconsciously telling you this is something that's taboo right don't talk about the naughty thing this is a bad word Mm -hmm. it needs to be censored right i remember amanda what were you gonna say so i've been married for 13 years and when i was dating my husband i remember this one evening he like got fully undressed in the room with me and i was just like oh my gosh like i just wasn't prepared and i was just so uncomfortable And so as a man, he's very comfortable being naked all like he just he has no issue with it whatsoever. And my boys are like that, too. And then my husband said this to me and it I couldn't believe it when he said it. But when I thought back on it, I know that it's true. It was like so after we've been married for 13 years, it was like seven years into our marriage before I ever was comfortable like being seen by him like naked which is so just, crazy to me i'm yeah. like seven years seven years like, into marriage yes so crazy yeah. and i think that is probably a product of our culture and the norms and the taboo nature of yeah. talking and being seen and taking up space as a female yeah, yeah. and then we have these we're given these pictures of what our bodies are supposed to look like and and they're not realistic ever mm-hmm. at all because no you know they're filtered but it, it seems like that's what we need to look like and so it just feels like we might never add up so therefore it's like really hard to be seen yeah. absolutely the vulnerability attractive. yeah yes and i think to your point women who have been married for years, the idea of starting to have sober sex with their spouse, even who they've had sex with for years can be really scary and feel really um, vulnerable to people. Yeah. 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 We, my husband and I had sober sex for years, but I was still in this point of being not fully confident. And then I went through my drinking phase, which I, I personally feel like drunk sex is very sloppy and for sure. it just like looking back, I'm like, uh, like that doesn't, I, I don't ever want to do that again. You don't want to go back to that. <laughs> yeah. And then having sober sex is like just so intimate and special mm-hmm. and it's heartfelt and it's just different than anything I've ever experienced because Prior to drunk sex, I was just, you know, young and insecure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, alcohol, now that I know a little more about it, it it shuts off parts of our brains, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like the emotional regulation part of our brain goes offline, right? Our memory goes offline or short-term memory and our motor skills, right? So it's like hearing this like... (laughs) Is you know, watching anybody just like walk in high heels when they're drunk, it's like they're not suave, right? They're not suave, they're they're not sassy and, and moving in this like gazelle type formation. No, it's like but they may know, think they are. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if we're showing up in the bedroom the same way, it's really hard to not only just, you know, as we were talking about being present, 
but just, you know, even the movements get, you know, get sloppy. sloppy. I mean, I don't know the way to say it. They're just sloppy. They're uncoordinated. Yeah. They're not beautiful. Yeah. You know, and I don't know about your guys' experience, but for me, you know, now that I'm sober, I, when I watch drunk people, it's such a powerful reminder of like, no one is their best self when they're drunk. Mm -hmm. right? They're just not. They're so just if you not. can't have, if you can't drive a car, if you can't have a good conversation, the idea that we're going to have like epic mind blowing sex when we're drunk is really just, you know, a tall tale. Like it's, it doesn't really make sense at all. Yeah. What are your thoughts about how to help women who are in that space where they've given up alcohol, maybe their spouse still drinks, sober sex feels new and a little bit nerve wracking, anything that could be helpful for them? You know, I listened to a podcast part in, in the beginning of my sober journey. I listened quite often to a podcast called Seltzer Squad. Um, and one of the hosts had said something that really stuck with me. And she said at the top of her sober journey, when her husband was still drinking, she put a boundary that she wouldn't have sex with him if he was drinking. And I actually held that boundary too. And I think it did help me because I think already just the idea of sober sex is such an overwhelming, intimidating experience to not have someone be meeting you there right? Gets yes. even scarier, right? So for yeah. me, that was like a boundary that I always have, you know, clients just consider, right? They should pick their own boundaries. If that doesn't feel right for them, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and then, and, and knowing it's going to be awkward, right? I often talk about like distress tolerance, right? It's like, sometimes we can't go from never having sober sex to it just suddenly being comfortable, Mm -hmm. Right. So really embracing the idea that this is going to be a learning curve packet full of self-compassion, right? Yes. Like this is new for me. I don't know how to do this. Nobody's taught me this. It's scary. It's vulnerable. I'm allowed to move slow, right? Yes. Maybe, you know, actual sex, penetration, all the like wild stuff that happens later is just too much of a stretch right now. Okay. Can we make out, <laughs> right? Can yeah. Sit on the couch and just like, go back to like, like, remember when you were in high school, like before sex was actually on the table, right? How fun was it when like, someone got to second base, right? Like, yes. Oh. So it's like, you can kind of go back to the basics and relearn how to do this. Um, and that's, that's okay. You know, I don't even care if you've been married for 20 years, it's okay to have to, to just reboot a bit to go back and, there. Yeah. And then you're building confidence, right? So just like any skill. Um, so that's usually where I say like, where's your comfort level is how do you feel if, if, getting completely naked and having, you know, penetrative sex just feels too much. What doesn't feel too much, right? Yes. Like, like you just said, right? Seeing my husband naked was actually uncomfortable for me. Okay, well, maybe we start there then, right? Maybe you just get naked. Um, yes. So, take you a know, shower together and yeah, see how that goes. Take a shower together. Exactly. Get in a hot tub, right? Make out in a pool. There's plenty of ways, you know, before we're just like thinking about the traditional route to sex. Yeah. yeah. And I think to. just like any kind of anxiety trigger it's going to be uncomfortable but the more you expose yourself to that thing the more you are de will develop a tolerance for it and it will become less uncomfortable with time exactly exactly that you know i also encourage people to get familiar with themselves right so you know we have to figure out what we like and we don't like Yes. So, you know, take that from any extreme that feels right for you. Maybe it just means standing in front of the mirror without clothes on and saying nice things to yourself, right? Yes. Sounds cheesy, sounds cliche. I can't, 
make it sound cool, but nonetheless, it, it's really but, important, powerful healing work. Right. Like getting yeah. to know what your body looks like, I think mm -hmm. yeah. can be helpful. Absolutely. Yes. I yeah. love that. I don't think it's cheesy. It's yes, I can see how it sounds cheesy, but I think like <laughs> in order to love ourselves, we need to know who we are and what we look like and what we like and what we dislike and own that and, you know, communicate yeah. it to our partners. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so important. And like making out, my husband and I have made out so much over the past two years, more than we ever have in our marriage. And it's, it is so intimate. And then like, we are very intentional about like, what I like and what he likes. And he knows like, you know, positions are important, you know, and um, like, what feels safe, what doesn't what feels yeah. good, or what's what could be uncomfortable or painful. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the shame comes into this as well, meaning communication around sex is actually usually a poor, right? So yeah. I'll, I'll say to, you know, again, predominantly women, I find have this, you know, showcase sort of this insecurity the most, but like, well, have you told your husband you don't like that? It's like, no, I don't want to hurt his feelings. Right. And like the idea that sex is supposed to be about the other person that like you don't get to show up like no sex gets to be pleasurable for you sometimes yes. even it might be just pleasurable for you right like we don't have to make this a mutually pleasurable experience sometimes it's his turn sometimes it's her turn sometimes it's multiple partners turns whatever it is for you right and you know allowing like that is part of intimacy is sharing your truth right mm -hmm. i don't like that is actually a really helpful sentence because your partner yes. may not know, especially if you've been doing it for, you know, a long time, right? Yeah. To suddenly just be like, hey, can we try this? You know what? Maybe I don't really like that. You know, you can yes. say it kindly, right? We don't have to be jerks, but that feedback is part of the intimacy. It is part of the communication. Yes. And there's a lot of shame around, you know, maybe, maybe more guilt, right? Around hurting someone's feelings. Yeah. And, you know, to flip it, like if there was something I was doing that, Mm -hmm. My husband didn't want to do, I would want him to tell me that I wouldn't want him just to do it because he didn't want to hurt my feelings. Right. You know, like we fear that we're going to hurt our partner's feelings and maybe they will feel slightly hurt. But I think mm -hmm. most of the time people really, they want to know what you're thinking and feeling and be able to meet your needs. Yeah. And trust, right? So even if I say to my husband, hey, I don't like that. I want to try this instead. Might he have a pang of rejection? Might he have a pang of insecurity? Yeah, sure. Maybe he will. Yeah. But trusting the relationship that like we can move past that, right? This isn't some catastrophic event. You know, we can disappoint each other. We can't hurt each other. We can feel rejections by our partners and still have a loving, meaningful, happy, sexy relationship, right? Yes. So we have to shy away from those conversations just because they might be difficult. And your husband is strong enough to cope with like a little bit of rejection. Yeah. <laughs> he has, yes. he, he has emotion regulation skills and he can, he can tolerate that and process it and move forward. Yeah. I think this also comes, reminds me of the stories we tell ourselves, you know, that aren't necessarily true that sometimes we think that it's going to hurt our spouse's feelings, but they may actually really appreciate the feedback instead. And I, mm -hmm. I, that was my experience when I finally like felt confident enough to share with my husband that like, I wanted to do things a little bit different sexually. 
I think he was thrilled <laughs> to have my feedback. And he was like, oh, this is, you know, there was, he wasn't upset at all. And he didn't mm -hmm. feel rejected at all. He was just so happy that like, I was finally able to have this conversation. Yeah, you know, a lot of what I do in therapy is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is just, you know, our thoughts dictate our behaviors. So we just have to get really, you know, curious about what our thought is. If our thought is, I'm going to hurt my feeling, my husband's feelings, my partner's feelings by sharing how I feel, we're probably not going to do it, right? But if we flip it a little bit, and it's like actually telling, you know, him or her what I am feeling strengthens the relationship, makes for better sex, right? We're going to be more likely to actually show up and do that. So, yes. you know, just really thinking about the stories you tell. I love the way that you put that. Yes. Yeah. And noticing the thinking traps that you typically fall into, like you're kind of mind reading, like, well, if I tell him this, this is what he's going to think and feel. Mm -hmm. And really that's possible, but, but you don't know for sure. That's kind of the worst case scenario. Like what's the best case scenario yeah. and what's the most likely scenario. The most likely is usually closer to the best case than the worst case that we tell ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. This yeah. negative self-talk that especially women have is so deeply rooted that, mm -hmm. I mean, it's sad and it, it takes so much work and it's, it's not like something you get to and you've solved this problem and you're good to go for life. It's like, it's like a journey you have to stay on for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. A lifelong process. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about kind of how people can get in touch with you, you know, what kind of clients you see and how they can reach you. Yeah. So I run a therapy practice in the state of New Jersey. Uh, again, I specialize in anxiety, sex and intimacy and trauma. Um, I have a website that I have built and I'm very proud of because <laughs> I did not know how to build a website four months ago. That's awesome. Um, yeah. It's a note from your therapist.com. So for New Jersey clients, um, I do have a therapy practice for people outside of New Jersey. I do also coaching. Um, that's more less so from a therapeutic lens, more for a empowerment, building confidence, kind of meeting your best self lens. Mm -hmm. um, therapy, we kind of go backwards and look at our past where coaching I find is really just future oriented, but I do offer yeah. both. Um, and I have, I'm starting a podcast starting next week. So thank you guys Yay! for being my, my inspiration. <laughs> that is uh, so exciting. Yeah, it is. I'm excited about it. I'm a little nervous, but, uh, you know, we can do hard things and that's we can my... do hard things. We can push through the nerves. So that's become, uh, called becoming unstoppable and it launches on February 1st or all, all right. where you can find all your podcasts. Um, okay. And then, you know, I'm on, I'm on the Instagram and I'm on the Facebook and all the social stuff, all um, the social media stuff. I love yeah. your social media. Your Instagram page is, is yeah. really good. I'm yeah. mostly a note from your therapist. I think one or two places they wouldn't allow that name. So I'm a note from therapy, but okay. all the main ones, I'm a note from a note from your therapist. Okay. Oh, I love that, Allison. I'm so excited to listen to your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, before we sign off any last tips or anything that you would share with women on this journey of kind of looking at alcohol, maybe they're sober curious, or maybe they're trying dry January, or they're already sober. Yeah, you know, I think if I look back to like, what would have helped me just knowing that there's no one way to do this, and there's no wrong or right way to do this. If you are looking at your life and questioning the relationship that you have with alcohol and wanting to change it, 
just keep following that lead, right? Find social support. Um, you know, for me, social media was actually a very powerful tool. There is so many communities on Instagram um, that really have been helpful. There's Quitlet. So just, you know, just keep showing up, right? It's, yeah, it's okay. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just be consistent. If you fall off, begin again, just gather yep. data. Right. And no you shame. also mentioned one of the ways that you found community is that you went on a Bali retreat early on. I did. I did. So um, I was looking into going to Bali because that's just been my dream. And I accidentally found someone who was only for sober women. And I, at the time, had been like a little dabbling with, you know, taking breaks. Um, and so I went. She only required a few months. So I committed to a few months uh, when I went to Bali. And so everyone there was alcohol free. They were all women. And it was life changing. I mean, it definitely you know, motivated me to continue this journey. I learned a lot of skills. Also, if you haven't been to Bali, highly recommend. Oh my gosh. Beautiful place. Beautiful. <laughs> so, you know, but that isn't, you know, a once in a lifetime sort of event. There's plenty of retreats that are are offered um, at all varying different locations, varying different price points. So, you know, if someone is interested in just having sort of a really immersive experience where they can kind of quick fire, learn a bunch of skills and build some quick support. Retreats are a great way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we actually have a, we, uh, have a Bali retreat. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Amanda. <laughs> that was like the exact same time. Uh, we have a Bali retreat <laughs> coming up at the end of April. Um, and it is yeah. for sober and sober curious women. And, and, you know, like Allison just said, this is the perfect opportunity for someone that truly is sober curious and wants to go spend a week with other women that are like-minded and see how much fun you can have alcohol-free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went almost two years ago now and we still have a, every woman that was in that group, we still have a running chat. Like they have yeah. become a very major support system, not just on the alcohol-free journey, but now we actually just, you know, share life events, right? And life. yeah, it really is. It is really a beautiful and unique experience. So if anybody's yeah. listening, I highly recommend joining their <laughs> retreats. Yes, we're, we're super excited. I went on a retreat myself as a participant in April of last year. And same thing, we have our WhatsApp group and we still talk and support each other. And even on the retreat ourselves, like it wasn't alcohol focused. Yes, we did talk about our journeys as alcohol-free women, but we were focused on all aspects of life and healing and just coming to accept who we are and, and, and befriend that person. And I think that is just such a, just a life-changing thing to do. And it's a beautiful place to do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. I, um, same, same experience. We did talk about alcohol, but that was not the primary focus. And what was birthed from that experience for me is, um, I actually am writing a book because I went to Bali. So I found, found really? inspiration. a lot of the workshops that we attended that that really came to the forefront of my brain that I really needed to do this. And I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I would have done it if I hadn't had, you know, that experience in Bali. So, so Bali, yeah. like that's kind of when those seeds were yeah. planted. Absolutely. It was. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we have just loved visiting with you today. Thank you so, so much for being here. So much. Appreciate both of you. Thank you so much for listening. We truly value each one of you. In support of the podcast, please follow or subscribe to the Mindful Sobriety Podcast.
We'd love to connect with you via Instagram at Jane W. Ballard and or DFW Yoga Girl. Sending you love and light.